is there anything better than starting off a Sunday service on Mother's Day with a baptism? Is there anything better than that? Casey and Elizabeth, thank you. And of course, Rosalie and Wallace and Conrad, thank you so much for allowing us to, to share this moment with you, with your family, to just join together as the body of Christ in this important moment. Today is Mother's Day and happy Mother's Day. It's so, glad, it's so good to have all of you gathered here in the Lord's house today. It's a special time because this is one of those Sundays where people come in from out of town and, uh, and maybe somebody you haven't seen in a while, we get to have all kinds of reunions and it's just a special day. And it's a special day within a special month. Not only is today Mother's Day, but this is graduation month. And I know that we have several college graduates here today. We have several who are getting ready to graduate. We've got, we've got others who are getting ready to graduate from high school. All of this is awesome. And I want to tell you that this month, Morgan and I have two graduations, two graduations in our family. Next week, our daughter Ellie is going to be graduating from the University of Oklahoma. And then in a couple of weeks, our son Bo will graduate from Lee High School, and we'll be, we'll be getting him ready to head off to the University of Texas in the fall. So yes, we are going through some fan whiplash, uh, going from Oklahoma to Texas, but we've got it all worked out, and let's just say that October is going to be a big month in our house from now on. But as I've been thinking about this, especially reflecting on Mother's Day, as I've been thinking about these special moments, as they get closer and closer there are lots of questions that keep coming up over and over again, but it can really be summed up in one big question. Are they ready? I mean, have all of the forms been filled out and have all the requirements been completed? Do they know what they need to know? Are they strong enough to meet the challenges that they're going to face? Did we help them to develop healthy habits? You know, when your children are no longer under your day-to-day -day care, and when they're no longer under your day-to-day -day supervision, you really begin to understand that most of the parenting we do is done by faith. The hard part is this. We all have hopes, and we all have dreams for our children. But we don't know how any of this is going to turn out. We don't know how the things we do in faith are going to turn out. Here's the problem. Parenting does not always give us immediate feedback. The blessings or consequences of the things I say or the things I do or the things I model or the things I neglect, the real blessings or consequences of those things may not show up for years. And as I look around, I see the experienced parents nodding and the new parents terrified. But it's true. We don't know health-wise, grade-wise, friend-wise, socially, physically, spiritually. We don't know how all these things are going to turn out. And a lot of it feels like guesswork, like one of those dreams that you have where you're, where you're in class and you've got an exam, but you know you haven't studied for it. Sometimes parenting feels like that. When we become parents for the first time, we have no idea and we quickly learn that we just have to go with our best instincts and the collected wisdom that we have from others. Now, what have I learned about parenting over the last 22 years? 
What I've learned about parenting over the last 22 years is that there is a lot that I thought I knew. And there is a lot that I never expected. And what's made the difference? Experience. And what I've learned through that experience is that 90% of parenting is based on faith. So here's the big question. What are you betting your children's lives on? Are you betting your children's lives on you and your knowledge and your wisdom? Or are you betting the life of your children on him? Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter about faith. I want you to just open your pew Bibles for a moment, if you would. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. It is frequently called the Hebrew Hall of Fame because it talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it talks about lots of the characters of the Old Testament, all leading up to the time of Jesus, all great exemplars of faith, all to illustrate one point, which is found in verse 11.1. Our scripture reading for today, verse 11.1, where the author of Hebrews writes this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now jump down just a few more verses, and these are a few more verses that I want to read today, and I'll explain why in a moment. But out of all those 40 verses, verses 5 and 6, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, listen to this, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Lord, we know that this is your word that it is absolutely true, and that it is given in love. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. We all have big hopes for our children. And complementing that, we all have fears based on things that we don't know and can't see. Because it's Mother's Day, I want us to ask ourselves, what does faith have to teach us about parenthood? And what does parenthood have to teach us about faith? The author of Hebrews wrote, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the the conviction of things not seen. We've been studying the book of Hebrews for several months now, and if you remember the context of this book, we remember that the author of Hebrews is telling his brothers and sisters to hang in there to stand strong, to endure, to not fold and retreat from following Jesus. 
even in the maw of great persecution. He's telling them to remember that Jesus is worth it and that they must bet their lives on him even when it gets hard. When things get hard, don't run from him, run to him. And into this argument, he injects faith. He calls them to faith. Faith both in things hoped for and faith in things not seen. What then is faith? If he wants us to have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, what is faith? And when most people use the word faith, they mean it in a very generic way. We tell people to have faith, and by that we mean to, to be optimistic, to keep hope alive, to just keep on pushing through and everything will work out. But the Bible has a very specific understanding of faith. The great Reformation leader Martin Luther described biblical faith, that is the kind of faith described by the author of Hebrews, as a function of three things, if you will, a recipe with three ingredients. Saving faith means to know something, to believe it's true, and to trust it with your own life. For Luther, this meant that faith is based on content, on acceptance, and on embracing. So let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 11. The first ingredient of faith is content. That is, to know the truth. This is about what we need to believe. Faith is not an empty vessel that we can fill with anything. Faith, when we talk about biblical faith, is faith in the story of the Bible. Faith in Jesus Christ is not just about casting our cares to the wind and hoping for the best. The author of Hebrews wants us, and he wants these early Christians to, to see that they must bet their lives on Jesus based on the history and the story of God's faithfulness. And the author of Hebrews goes all the way back to the beginning of the world. He's saying that real faith is grounded in necessary facts. These fa facts span from creation on through the stories of Cain and Abel, of Noah, of Abraham, of Sarah, of Sarah Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and so on and so on. Verses 2 through 40 are all about that story. But he begins by saying, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not, out, was not made out of things that are visible. He begins with the creation, the first necessary fact. Now the purpose of this long list of facts and the summation of their meaning is that our God is a promise keeper. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God says that he's going to do something, he does it. Our God has the integrity and the power to fulfill what he says he is going to do. And from Adam through Jesus, he has kept every promise that he ever made to his people. And so faith is, first of all, based on this fact, God's track record, that our God is the God who can and does keep his promises. 
Second ingredient. Second ingredient of saving faith is acceptance. That is to believe the truth. It's not enough just to know the facts. Faith comes from believing that this stuff is actually true. Now, why did I... Why did I single out these two verses about Enoch, of all the more famous people in that whole passage? It's because in these two passages about Enoch, there are a couple of elements that we really ought to understand about the nature of faith. It's not necessarily because I want to focus on Enoch, but because these two verses describe two essential qualities, two critical qualities. Verse 6 says this, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Now, that seems so basic as to be beyond the need to mention, except that there is such a dire distance between what people say they believe and and actually believing that, that what God has done is actually true. The promises of God and of salvation in Jesus Christ are meaningless if they are not true. Stories of the Bible are not legends, they're not myths, they're not morality fables, and they will have no power in our lives if we don't believe that they're actually true. You know, I know people who know everything there is to know about Greek mythology, but they don't follow Zeus. And I know people who know all the facts and all the trivia of all the Star Wars movies, but they don't bet their lives on the force. Most of them don't anyway. But I want you to think about those types of, those, that type of information and then think about the other real events of history. The Alamo, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things are all true. And they have shaped our lives and they have shaped our world in ways that fiction does not. These events are real. And they've shaped the reality in which we live. So it's not enough just to know the stories. We have to actually believe that they're true. The third ingredient of faith is described also in verse 6, which says that Enoch not only believed that God exists, but that he drew near to God. The third ingredient of saving faith is embracing. That is, loving the truth. The word faith in Greek is the word pistis. And pistis really means trust. And so the question is this. Do you not only know the story and believe that the facts are true, but do you trust them and bet your life on them? Are you willing to put all your eggs in that basket? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he not only did for the people back then, he not only did for your sainted grandmother, he actually did that with you in mind, for you as well. Do you embrace that as a truth for you? Are you willing to put your life, and not only your life, but the lives of those you love most in the world, in the hands of God and in the hands of this Savior? And this is where... The saving faith of Hebrews intersects with Mother's Day because this is where the rubber hits the road. When I trust Jesus with my life, I'm also trusting the lives of those I love most 
to him. When I trust Jesus with my life and the lives of those I love, especially my children, I'm not just putting all of my eggs into Jesus' basket. I'm also putting their eggs into Jesus' basket too. That's why I think that parenthood is a great illustration of what the author of Hebrews means when he describes faith. It's also a great example of what the reality of faith really looks like and feels like when we move away from academic definitions. Because how does he describe faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Remove the word faith and stick in the word parenthood. Parenthood is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because we all have big hopes for our children, don't we? And we all have fears based on the things that we don't know and we can't see. Sometimes we're terrified by what we don't see happening in the lives of our children, and sometimes we are terrified by what we do see happening to our children. And as we look at this 11th chapter of Hebrews, we'll find stories of both victory and blessing, but we'll also find stories of agony and tears. And in every case, what defined the faith of the people involved in these stories was not their confidence in their ultimate success and safety. Their faith was not in how things would work out for them, but rather their faith was in the Lord and his faithfulness. You see, we are so used to thinking in terms of outcomes that we forget that our faith is in a person. What they all had in common was that they knew God, that they believed in him, and they embraced him and trusted him with their lives. And so their faith was not based on the outcomes, but in the person who makes the outcomes. I will trust God in spite of, of what I see and in spite of what I hear. Faith is not based on results. Faith is based on a person. Not on outcomes we can see but on the reality and the love of a Savior that we can see. Excuse me, that we cannot see. And so, we don't trust in results. We trust in Him. We can go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We read that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Oh boy, is that an understatement. Does it look like God? We know, I mean, our theological minds can say God's in control, but does it look like God's in control all the time right now? If you think so, then you are way more pious than I am. Because sometimes it just looks like everything's gone sideways. We, at present, he says, we do not see everything in subjection to him but, he says, we see him. We don't see the outcomes. We don't see the results. We don't see everything like that. But what we can see is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, loving us and alive. 
At present, as parents, we don't see everything working out all the time. As parents, at present, we do not know how things will turn out. At present, things may seem utterly out of control. At present, all I can see are other people's kids, successful, trouble-free, happy, and yet all I see at home is trouble, and all I feel is frustration and failure. Anybody ever felt like that before? Have you got an Instagram account or a Facebook account? Comparing your life to somebody else's? We can't trust always in the outcomes. We don't know if we can have confidence in those. We have to put our trust in Him. The hard part is this. As a parent, we don't know how things, how the things we're doing in faith are going to turn out. But neither did all of those people in Hebrews chapter 11. They trusted in a God and in the results that they could not see. And what did God do? What did God do for that faith? He honored them. Verse 38 says that the world was not worthy of them. Not just the ones who seemed successful by the world's standards, but those who suffered by the world's standards. Faith is not based on presumed outcomes. It is based on a person that we know, that we believe is real, and that we trust. I want to add one more story of faith to this list. One more name into this list of names given in Hebrews chapter 11. And the name is Monica. Monica was a young mom. She had three children when her husband died, and so she very early on became a single parent. As a single mother of three, she persevered in the face of many difficulties, but her greatest desire was for her children to follow Christ. She had this one child, this one son in particular, who was a real problem. As a child, he didn't seem to care one bit about God. As a teenager, he was rebellious. As a young man, he ran with the wrong crowd, drinking heavily, pursuing every lustful temptation. And to make matters worse, he was highly intelligent. You know those really smart kids? He was highly intelligent. He was a great orator. And he used those very talents to mock his mother's faith and to, and to disrespect her beliefs at every turn. But Monica kept on praying for him. She pleaded with him. She never stopped praying for him in spite of the circumstances. And one day when she was at the end of her rope, she went to her priest sobbing on his shoulder and said, what can I do? And he said, you've got to keep praying. She said, why? And he said, because it is not possible that, that the son of so many tears should perish. And she heard that word and she kept praying for her son. And it was not until many years later that Monica's son finally gave his life to God. Now Monica is known today as Saint Monica. And this story took place in the 4th century A.D. And her son was a man that we now know as Saint Augustine. In his confessions... St. Augustine declared that it was the Holy Spirit working through his mother's resilience and dedication to prayer that led him to become the man of God that he was meant to be. He stated that his mother gave birth to him twice and that she was not only his mother, but the source of his Christianity. St. Monica passed away in AD 387, shortly after St. Augustine was baptized. 
Her faith and her dedication to motherhood played a pivotal role in his spiritual formation. And he became one of the most brilliant philosophers and influential Christians of history. And the best gift that Monica ever gave to her son was her own faith, her own relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, Monica knew Jesus. She believed that he is real. And she trusted him, not only with her own life, but with the life of her son and her other children. And her legacy reminds us that in spite of the outcomes we see, we have to trust in the Lord that we cannot see. As parents, we all live somewhere between the things that we fear and the things that we hope for. Somewhere between what we can see and what we cannot see. And we all know that children wander, children rebel, children get lost, And the final report card on our parenting doesn't come out for many years in the future. But the author of Hebrews is pleading with us, saying that even if you can't see how the Lord is working or what God is doing in the life of you and your children, even if you can't see the things that you want to see for your children, see Him. Know that He is there. Do not give up on the things hoped for. Do not give up on things not seen. Because what the Lord allows, He will redeem. You have to have faith beyond what you can do and have to trust in what He is doing. Now, I know that Mother's Day is all about gifts and cards and flowers. And kids, especially you sons, I hope that you've taken care of that. (laughs) But I hate to do this, but moms, I'm going to ask you for one more thing. You have already given so much to us. You've already given so much to your children. I'm going to ask you for one more thing. Mother, would you give your children one more gift? the gift of your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the best thing that you can give your kids. That relationship that you have. Your real relationship with Jesus himself. The best thing you can do for your children is to know him. Know who he is. Know what he's done for you. The best thing you can do for them is to believe in him that he is real and that what he says he did and and who he says he is is true. And trust him. Live in such a way that your children know that you take God seriously and that you are betting your life on him. And then, through earnest, Monica-like prayers, Put your children in God's hands. The greatest gift that we can give our children is the the gift of faith they see in us. A faith that trusts in God 
for our greatest hopes and carries us through everything that we cannot see. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you for the mothers in this room, for the mothers in our families, for the women who have influenced us, for the connections that we have that connect us to you. And, oh, Lord, it is so presumptuous to ask one more thing from the women I see sitting before me today. But, Lord, I just pray that their their relationship with you would be so strong that it just spills over as a gift to their children. And Lord, for any mother or any, any young parent, any young, young woman, any young man who one day wants to have kids, I just pray, O oh Lord, that you would now begin to work in them a personal relationship that will be so palpable, so convicting, that even if their kids don't get it for years, it will carry them through all those things that they hope for and that they cannot see. Lord, of them, the world will not be worthy. And so, Lord, hold us in your hand, guide us by your faith, and draw us closer to you so that we may know you, believe in you, and trust you with everything we've got. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.